Shooter. I've been in the comics business for a long time. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Spoiler Country. Welcome back. It's Spoiler Country time. Come, Come on, on in. in. Come yeah. on down. Come on down. Come on in. Have some fun. Today on the show, who we got, Johnny? Let's get into this. We got the legendary Jim Shooter, man. And he came on and talked with, you know, Jeff, Big Hoss. And dude, <laughs> they talked so much. And it's, it's, it's a funny yeah. story, man, because we were supposed to, you and I were supposed to talk to Jim Shooter like months and months and months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And he ghosted us. Yeah. And then we were supposed to talk to him again. And then he ghosted us. Right. And then he talked to Jeff, didn't ghost Jeff, talked to Jeff for an well, hour. Jeff hounded him. Let's just be honest. Right. Yeah. Well, Jeff did what Jeff does, which is great. Yeah. And they, Jeff, uh, Jim came on, talked with Jeff. They talked for an hour, and which is usually an episode about an hour long, right? Yeah. Right? Well, at an hour, Jeff's computer started having problems. Essentially, his C drive was full. Right. And it was it had a problem. It couldn't keep recording. So it kept the Zoom kept stopped recording. And so he contacted me. He ended up rescheduling with Jim for the next week. And they record, and then, then they recorded two more hours. So this is just part one. Out of part one series. Yeah, we got three hours with Jim Shooter talking about everything from DC to Marvel to to everything else that he's done. And just so everybody knows, uh, Jim is probably the most notorious editor at Marvel that's ever yeah. been, and okay. it probably ever will be. Right. So this is good stuff, and let's you're, you're in for a treat. Yeah. There you go. Spooky. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show we have the legend, Mr. Jim Shooter. How's it going, sir? Very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's the truth. You are definitely one of the great legends of comic books, especially over the last 30, 40 years. Well, let's see. It's been 56 years, so I guess I started being a legend after a while. But... <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to age you too much by saying 50. <laughs> but once again, I, it's, it's, it really is a true honor to talk with you. I am definitely the envy of everyone at Spoiler Country for the opportunity to be the one who talks with you. Oh, that's great. Thanks. So... I guess the question I guess everyone will be wondering is, why comic books? Why do you love comic books? Well, when I was a little kid, I, I learned to read from comics. Everybody says that. It's true with me. And I love comics, but kind of outgrew them when I was eight. They, they, they all seemed the same after a while. And then I rediscovered them when I was about 12. And there were these newfangled Marvel comic books. And they were really good. And I think that's, I was started reading them again. And, and that's when I decided, hey, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to make this stuff. And, and uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I, I've read about you is that you have a tremendous work ethic. And I read that was connected to your father, who was known to be a very hard work in the steel industry. Is that, is that kind of where you get your work ethic from? Yeah, I think that whole generation was like that. But my father was exceptionally like that. My mother worked hard too. You know, it's just what you do. It's it's when when you grew up in in the time I did. You know, that was that was how you were taught, and that's what you do. So, I heard that there was also at some points during your early life there was some financial difficulties in the steel industry, and that kind of embedded with you the the need to keep working hard and keep being motivated is, would that be correct yeah i mean the, the thing is when i decided to write comics it wasn't on a lark it wasn't oh i think that'll be fun 
I mean, my family needed the money. My father's a hardworking guy, but there would be steel strikes or, or their layoffs and stuff. And, and uh, you know, so sometimes he's out like mowing people's lawns and, you know, fixing their cars and stuff, trying to, you know, uh, make ends meet. So it was a problem. Money was a problem. And I, I thought, well, I, you know, they're not going to give me a job in a factory. You know, I'm 12, you know, they're, you know, and, and there's no job I could get, I thought would, you know, make a difference. I had a paper route, big deal you know, a few dollars a week. But so then I, that's when I thought, hey, somebody gets paid for making these comics. Maybe I can do that, you know? And so I, I literally studied them for a year, not just reading, studied them, try to figure them out, try to figure out, well, mm. how does this work? And, and what do you do? And what's normal? And then, and I, 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 I got it to the point where I thought, you know, hey, I think I, you know, I think I'm ready, you know? Yeah, ready, you know? And, and so I, I wrote a, a script and sent it in and, and my intention was to sell it. I didn't, a lot of people, when they send in scripts for fun, you know, in, in the first issue, they, they, they kill Aunt May and they cure Ben Grimm and they, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I tried to play it by what I thought were the, the parameters that governed, you know, the, the, the regular comics, you know, they don't change everything in one issue. They don't, you know, uh. They didn't do uh, no no sudden moves, you know. I mean, it, you built to something, and that that so that's what I I, I did, and, and it was good enough to pass muster. They I did three when I was thirteen. They bought all those and published them, and then the editor called me and said, "I want to use you as a regular writer. I'll start giving you assignments," and he did. And that's how I worked my way through high school. He didn't know how old I was. <laughs> I lived four hundred miles away. I lived in Pittsburgh, and and uh, right. so it was all over the phone, you know, or mail. And so he didn't know. He found out eventually. <laughs> Put your mother <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, did you have to sign contracts? I mean, wouldn't um, like, you wouldn't be old enough to sign for yourself, would you? No, not at all. And, but no, that nobody, you know, the back of the check had this little thing on it that said that DC owned everything. Okay. You know, I don't care. They, they were paying me, you know. And it's, it, it really, it saved the house, you know. I mean, uh, the money that, that came in, got, you know, helped us out a lot. And so, you know, and I, there was no contract or anything like that. No one, I don't think people were as uh, conscious of that stuff back then, you know. And like I said, it did, I, I knew what I was doing and I was fine with it. So I find it interesting that you said for a year you studied comic books. Yep. Now, where did that knowledge come from to know what to look for and how to go about actually doing it? Well, what I did was I, I read a lot of comics. I read some of these newfangled Marvels and I read the old DCs and they hadn't changed much since I was eight years old. You know, Superman is still fighting Lex Luthor and, and, and trying to keep his secret identity hidden from Lois Lane. Batman is fighting the Joker and the Penguin on top of giant toothpaste tubes and typewriters. <laughs> I mean, nothing had changed really. And, and, and so I read some of those anyway to figure out what's wrong with these. And then I read the ones that Stan wrote to see like, well, you know, how else could you do it? And, and I started to get, I started to notice patterns. I started to notice that in most books, you, in all books in those days, you, you were introduced to the characters. They, they showed you who this guy was, you know, what he could do and stuff. And you got to, so you, you felt comfortable knowing, you know, who it was. I also noticed that, by the way, in Uncle Scrooge. Uncle Scrooge, every issue started off with him doing something cheap or miserly. So now mm. I know who Uncle Scrooge is, you know? So so I, I noticed that, and, and, and I noticed that usually, you know, okay, we see what the situation is for them. 
And then something comes, something happens, something comes along, you know, Dr. Doom transports them to the micro world or something. Mm. You know what I mean? That something will change their, their nice situation. And an adventure ensues. And, and uh, near the end of the book, there's a climax. And a lot of times it was a surprise or it was a very dramatic climax. And, and, and then they ended. And, and at, what I really noticed about Stan's stories is, is that they didn't just get the hero back to the same place. The hero, he learned something. He made a friend. He, 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 he saw something in a different way or, or he was, you know, happier or whatever. You know, and I started to notice that. that what I see. That's what makes these better. That's mm. one of the things that makes these better. And so anyway, I'm just, just comparing and figuring out. I was a smart kid. I, you know, I, 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 I was, like you say, I was pretty industrious. And I put, I put my mind to it. And I, I did the best I could. Now, I'm just kind of curious. In school, were you equally as studious as you were with yes. comic books? Yeah, I was, I was, you know, top of the class kind of kid. And I also, I, I took, I took some advanced classes. I took algebra when I was in eighth grade. I took, I crammed uh, six years of science into four years of high school. I, I, I took all the math they offered from geometry up to calculus, probability and statistics. I even took a special after school science class called biology research. And, uh, you know, and I, we, I was, I was a smart kid. I mean, I, I, I was in junior high school. It was a, a local TV show. It was, it was Local in Pittsburgh means the whole tri-state area. Gotcha. It's, it's almost 4 million people and viewers, you know, and, and, and uh, potential viewers. So they had this thing that it was like college bowl, only it was for junior high school kids. You know, yeah. <laughs> college bowl where they had colleges competing, answering questions. Yeah. You know, it's like a game show. Well, they had that for high schools uh, or, or junior high schools. And I was chosen for the, the team and we won it all <laughs> just, just because me i mean we won the championship but we had some really smart kids and i held my own and you know i mean i was i was you know a, a smart kid so were you also reading things other than comics at the time like were you reading novels and and other things as well well i always had when i was maybe four and a half five years old but i learned to read my mother would read to me comic books, like Uncle Scrooge or something, and she would point at the words as she read them, and she'd read slowly, okay? After a little while, I didn't need mommy anymore, you know? I mean, I could read them myself. And then I started reading everything I could lay my hands on. I mean, I, when I was, I don't know, like second grade, I was reading uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Had to go to the dictionary a million times. Right. But, but my mother also taught me that. You know, you don't know a word, you look it up. Smart. And so I was like reading all that stuff. And my mother was a sucker for uh, salespeople. I mean, you know, I, she just had difficulty turning someone away when they knocked on the door and they wanted to sell you something. So she bought a set of encyclopedias in 1960. So I would have been, you know, nine. And with a world book encyclopedias, a lot of pictures, really nice set of encyclopedias. I read the entire set cover to cover. Wow. Cover to cover. Jesus. And, you know, because I was, I like to read. And, you know, when you get a kid reading, I mean, then they, they're reading soup cans and cereal boxes and newspaper. They're, they, you know, it, it just becomes uh, instinctive, it becomes habit. So I always ask this to a lot of my guests because um, I, I'm a high school English teacher. I teach at a therapeutic high school, but I teach uh, high school English. 
There's always my theory, and I always see if I can verify it or not, that read, un, reading and understanding one form of literature helps you better understand and become a better writer in all other forms as well. Would you agree with that, with what you were doing? Absolutely. The bedrock is the same, okay? You know, uh, there's different forms, you know, screenplays, comics, novels, whatever. But the bedrock is the same. The bedrock is story. And, and, and story, you know, what's a story? Well, Aristotle tried to figure that out, you know, 300 years, 300 some years before the birth of Christ. And he came up with, a, uh, with a, an idea of what it was. And he wrote a book called Poetics. And in that book, he, he basically, he didn't invent this. He didn't decide it. He observed it, all right? Mm. And in that book, he explains that, that what I just said before, that, that a story is a complete journey. It doesn't have to be a physical journey. It's a complete journey. Mm. It's, it's, you, 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 we find out who the guy is. We, we, he starts somewhere. Something will inevitably happen. It could be an opportunity. It could be a disaster. It could be anything you know, that, that compels him to take a journey. Could be a mental journey, could be, you know, a, a, a developmental journey, could be a physical journey, could be a battle, you don't know. And that journey carries him to some place where there is, a, 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 it puts forces in conflict and it takes him to a place where those forces in conflict, one of them has to win or somehow the conflict has to be decided, leaving him in a new place. Okay, every novel, Every TV show, every movie written by anyone who has any clue what they're doing, you look for. It's there. It's always there. The only place you won't find it always is in comics, because for some reason, comics writers never learn their craft. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. They just, they don't, uh, you know, they, they, they kind of think like uh, it's, it's all it's just free form. You just do what you want. Mm. And try, trying to get them out of that mindset was one of my biggest challenges when I was the editor-in-chief at Marvel. I mean, they used to, I used to say, there's no ending to this. They said, what's a soap opera? You know, it just goes on and on. I said, no, people buy one unit of entertainment. There better be a story in here mm. or enough of a story to bring them back to read the end of the story, you know, in an issue or two. Yeah. And, and you know, they blink their big cow eyes at me. And I kept explaining it. And finally, I started, you know, convincing people. And, and, and guess what? Sales take off. And all of a sudden, we're 70% of the market. And, and, you know, marching from victory to victory. Now, I didn't have to explain it to Archie Goodwin. He knew. I didn't mm. have to explain it to Larry Hama. Explain anything to Larry, he gets mad at you. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have to explain it to Louise or, or Denny. Or, you know, I mean, right. I had a great crew. And so I had a lot of allies. And, and we were all preaching the same stuff and 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 then the, the younger kids learn from you know louise and and like anna sandy learned from louise she she taught louise taught anna sandy so i mean we uh, all of a sudden we had this great crew of people who really understood what a professional writer does and professional storyteller too is that which is a slightly separate subject mm. but so i had that that was our our key to success and, and it applies to everything you know it had nothing has changed in the storytelling business for 40,000 years. You um, tell a good story and tell it well. That's it. Then you win. See, I, th I, I find what you said very fascinating. Not only do I find it true, but like I said, fascinating. And I, and I do wonder about comic book writers, if it is at times either a fear to let the character grow, or as you said um, before, a desire to be 
the name of that character immediately, you know, make the big break. You know, I made this character. I, you know, break, you know, break news, you know, kill the character, save the character. Something massive has to happen instead of worrying yeah. about one story at a time. You know, I mean, basically, I had a, I met a guy at one of these shows, and, and he was saying he how much he liked the comics when I was at Marvel and, and a couple other companies. And, uh, and he, said when, he said, when I was there, he said, he said when you were there, Jim, yeah. he said, it was all about stories. He says, now it's about events. You know, it's like uh, somebody dies, gets married, has a new costume, and that's what, the, that's what it's about. And it got, that gets pretty tedious pretty quick. So, so no, I, 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 like I said, I, I miraculously assembled the best crew of people ever, ever gathered to, to work in comics. It wasn't quite a miracle because everybody else was dying, and so a lot of those people were unemployed. Okay. therefore available you know and so marvel was hanging on by a thread but at least we were hanging on yeah and and then with when i had all these great people together you know i mean okay archie Goodwin. everybody wanted to work for archie Goodwin. people who didn't know me and maybe didn't like me for whatever reason they'd work for archie a lot of people just you couldn't lined up to work for larry louise everybody wanted to work with louise you know so all of a sudden people start showing up i made the benefits better i paid people better I got all kinds of rights, things going, and guess what? You know, word gets out. You can make money at Marvel. Things are good at Marvel. And all of a sudden, more people show up. And, you know, you look around. Every place is a genius. You know, my, my, my art director, John Romita. I mean, you know, Hall of Fame, Grandmaster. That's yeah. my art <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I mean, and, and the thing is, it just, that was, it was, it's a good time. I, I said, this is, this is how you do it. This is what works. The people I brought in, most of them said, yeah, we were always told to do something stupid, but, but no, that's what we want to do. And they did. And they taught people. Nobody teaches anything. And I don't think it's that the writers these days or the comical creators these days are so much, well, I want to. Oh, I think you froze, sir. <clears throat> sir? I think you, you definitely froze. Clear my end. I have an instant hit. I want to, you know. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, sorry. You froze for um, a good 10, 20 seconds. Oh, sorry about that. No, no. It could have been on my end. I'm not sure. Every once in a while, my internet might have had a weak connection. Or it just uh, a little thing just popped up and said you have an unstable connection. Yeah. Oh, so I don't know what that means. But but if you want to ask me something again, then uh, go ahead. I'll rant some more. <laughs> no, I, I. You know what? I think the, the greatest thing I think for anyone who's interested in comic books who either wants, and let's face it, most people who read comic books deep down in their heart wishes they could do, write for comic or do the artwork for comic books. I mean, I mean, I, I can't have to think there's anyone who reads comics and goes, eh, I don't really care to do any of that stuff. Everyone deep down is like, give me one shot, dude, just one shot, and I can do this. It, it's you know, it's like, like Wally Wood always used to say that music fans love musicians. He said, comics fans are waiting for us to die so they can take our place. <laughs> you know, there was there's some truth in that. And I, I'll tell you why. I've thought about that a lot. Comics is the most collaborative uh, mass medium. No, well, it used to be a mass medium. Because, you know, first of all, people don't, like, you know, get out of college and think, hmm, what can I do? I know. I'll do comics. No. Most people grow up their whole lives wanting to work in comics. Okay? And that's one. So, basically, we're all fans. doesn't matter which side of the desk you're on or, or you know, which side of the equation you're on. We're all fans, and and if you you know if, you, if we go to conventions, we meet each other. There are they, we read letters, we send letters, we 
you know, when now that there's the internet, we're all over it, you know, but it's, it's, and it's very collegial. I mean, if you see Steven Spielberg in a restaurant, you want to go over and talk to him about his latest movie, his bodyguards are going to dump you in the street, right? Yep. But comics <laughs> just can't wait to talk to people, you know, and they can't wait to talk to us. And, and often you could change sides of the table it wouldn't make any difference, you know? Right. So, so yeah, the thing is, I think that, you know, there, there's, there's a real element of, there, there's a cacoethes, you know, there, there's a, there's this drive that we all seem to have. And, and, and part of that, I believe is because when you're reading a comic book, it, it's a pretty intense and engrossing experience. It's the only visual medium. That's a one sense medium, eyes only. Okay. It's, it, it is, you don't, you're not fed the story you take it at your own pace okay you're you're involved your your brain is involved you don't you don't have to do a whole lot you don't have to try to keep up you don't have to you know try to figure things out because you can always go back to the, ne to the previous page so so they you know it, it's like i think that as i said so many of these comic book creators that don't know their craft because I think they were so involved in what they were reading when they were fans that they 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 think it's just it just comes. They think it's just you know they they've been having a conversation, a personal one on one conversation with a comic book for years, and now they think it's just their turn to talk some more. I don't know. I, I all I know is that is that getting people to understand, you know, everything about comics is that is good is still good. If you know your craft, mm. in fact, it's better, you know, and, and so we, we taught people and, 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 and I don't think that happens very much today. I don't think, I mean, oh, P.S. Not only did I read and study the comics, I also ended up working for Mort Weisinger. He taught me an awful lot. Okay. I also worked with all these all-time great guys, Wally Wood, Gil Kane, Kurt Swan. Kurt Swan used to write me these long letters on big sheets of vellum, you know, like cluing me in things about storytelling, little drawing tips and stuff. And so, I mean, I'm, I listened to every word these people said, wrote some of it down, you know, yeah. and then I go to Marvel and I'm working with Stan. I'm on the phone with Jack three, four, five hours a week because I was editing his books for two and a half years. I was on the phone with Jack for four or five hours because he'd send in one book a week. Okay. That's how fast he was written and pencil. And so, and you know, and also who else did I have around me? I had Wally Wood. I had uh, John Romita. I had, you know, all these great people, Archie Goodman, maybe the best ever in our business. I mean, he, he was terrific. I learned from these. I also learned from the people who worked for me, you know, like, I mean, the uh, freelancers. I'd, I'd pick things up from Claremont. I'd say, I hadn't thought of that, you know? Mm. And Miller, when he came along, he was a new kid. He didn't know anything. Well, but he's great. And so he very quickly caught on. You know? And I'm teaching him storytelling and, you know, story structure and so mm. forth. And then all of a sudden he gets it and he takes off. And now I'm learning from him. I never thought of that. You know, I thought that's an interesting way to do that, you know? So, you know, it's just, I think you, you have this relationship with comics and if you put a little effort into it, you can learn a lot and you put a little more effort into it uh, and listen to people who know what they're doing. You can learn a lot more. I, I sure listen to every, every, all my elders, <laughs> you know, Stan taught me so much. It was, it was great. Is there something, is there a common asset that great writers have in common that when you see someone at the beginning of their career, you can say, that one's going to be something special, that guy or girl, whatever? Yeah, I, th I think that, 
you know, here's the thing is, is like, you, you, you can teach someone how to say something. You can teach them the language, right? You can teach them literary devices. You can teach them all the story mechanics, all the stuff like that. You look for the ones who are smart enough to grasp all that, but you also look for the ones who have something to say, something, something that, because that, no, you can't teach that. You know, if you, if you don't have that, that, that insight and, 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 and look at things in an interesting way. And, and, and it's not like, it's not, I'm not talking parables. I'm not talking morality plays. I'm talking about what, do you have an interesting point of view on the human condition? Well, tell me about it. Mm. You know? And, and if you read the best guys, it's, it's not just Dr. Octopus is tearing up the city. Spider-Man's got to go fight him. It, it's, there, there, there's something about the human condition in there, not, not to preach anything, but just because the writer thinks, what would a guy like Dr. Octopus really be like? What would he say? How would he do that? You know? And they, they, they don't just dance the puppets. They, they, they make them into people. And it, it, you look for a guy who has that kind of instinct. I mean, when Frank Miller came in, he couldn't draw very well. You know, he wanted to be an artist. It, it, you know, drawing was not ready for prime time. But, you know, you sit with him for, for 10 minutes and you realize this guy is sharp and he's got something to say, you know. And so we gave him a shot and he blew it. And I told him so. And he said, give me another chance. And I did. And and then he he would bear down and do it <laughs> and then he just like got better and better and now you know now he's a genius well i find it kind of i think it's great that you look for people who have something to say i find yeah. that especially nowadays there seems to be a debate in the industry of whether or not comic books are political and i would no, argue they that they're, a, they're, they, they're proud of it they're all, they're always talking social justice warrior stuff you see the thing is what they're missing is they forgot what business they're in they're in the business of entertainment. They're telling stories, all right? And the thing is, if, 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 even if you as a reader agree with everything that they're, all the social justice stuff that they're preaching, even if you agree with it, they're doing propaganda. And even if you agree, you don't want to read, no one wants to read propaganda. It's just, you know, it's like, yeah, 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 fine. You know, can we have a story? No, it, it, that's where they're going wrong. It's not, that, that's not, uh, what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about something to say being, you know, teaching people social justice. You know, Stan used to stand a lot of social justice stuff in his work, Stan and Jack and Steve and all those guys. I mean, they, 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 they but it was built into the character. It wasn't, mm. it wasn't the, the writer or the company talking at you. It was, it, the character had a point of view and therefore mm. was more human. And that, that to me is, you know, if you can get, you find somebody who thinks that way, or you can get somebody to think that way, you know, well, that's dynamite. So I, I think it's interesting that being that you were a writer who wrote so young, you, you basically were a child savant in the comic book industry. Mm. I mean, in the teenagers, 13, 14, 15, 16, and that's younger than was any other writer I can think of who gets their start. Did it, was it difficult to be taken seriously by your editors and, and artists who were much older than you that you had to work with? And how did you manage that? Well, on the contrary, I mean, like my editor, Moore Weisinger, he didn't know how old I was. He was just judging the work, you know, and let's say comics, writing, creative work and sports are meritocracies. Nobody wants to see your diploma. They want to, you know, 
see how high you can jump or how well you can show me your work, you know? So, so he, he, he thought it was fine when he found out that I, at that time, had just turned 14. After he said, put your mother on the phone, he got me back. And he said, he said, well, you know, if you can do it, you know, uh, uh, fine, you can work for me. And I'm going to treat you just like everybody else, which meant he was going to yell at me a lot. But so, okay, so now I'm working with these guys like Kurt Swan and, and Al Plastino and, and uh, Wally Wood and Gil Kane. They helped me. They, they, you know, they were, they, first of all, I used to do layouts for everything, for these great artists. I'm doing layouts, right? And they followed my layouts. They respected the kids' layouts. Wow. And, and because, I mean, the old pros, they were, they were professional. They, they, you know, they, they respected you and did their jobs. And, and like I said, I listened to them. They, they, they'd help me out. I mean, they, they, Kurt would send me letters. Al Plastino sometimes would make little, I, I'd lay something out just a little wrong and he'd fix it and, and, you know, tell me like this. And I say, okay, I see. I see you, this guy belongs over here. So stuff like that. You know, I mean, I never got any disrespect or any grief from anybody except Bob Haney. And Bob <laughs> Haney used to make jokes of me like, like, because my style was obviously influenced by Stan. You know, I was like the very pale imitation of Stan. And Haney used to call me... DC's Marvel writer. Oh, here's our Marvel writer. You know, <laughs> he, he meant it kind of insulting. You know, <laughs> I didn't care. I was fine with me. If they thought I was a Marvel writer, I thought that was pretty good. I mean, considering especially Marvel has a long, the longer history of selling better than DC, you figure that's their compliment right there. Well, when I was when I started, DC, you know, ruled the roost, and and Marvel actually they had some problems with their distributor, and they ended up. The only place they could get distribution was through DC's distributor, which was owned by the same company, National Periodical Publications. It was called Independent News. And Independent News didn't want Marvel Comics because they already had DC. They had enough comics, you know. But uh, as a favor to Martin Goodman, the people at the National Periodicals allowed him to publish. I think at first he was allowed eight titles a month. And that grew over the years, partially because those eight were doing so well. Now, in the 60s, Marvel started out low, but grew and grew and grew and grew. At the same time, DC went down and down and down, okay? And, and so Marvel was eclipsing them. And I was, I was on the Legion of Superheroes. That was my regular monthly book. And that, um, that was the only DC book that was holding its own. It sold a steady 500,000 copies in issue the whole time I was on it. And there was a statement of ownership, a postal statement of ownership in my, the first issue I did. Mm -hmm. Postal statements of ownership would tell you what the average sales per issue were and what the sales of the issue nearest to the filing date were. You had to do this every year to keep your second class mailing privileges. And every magazine did. In the last issue I did of Adventure Comics with Legion of Superheroes, they had a postal statement of ownership. And it was the same. They were both <laughs> of 500,000. That's was unheard of now. Nowadays, they they they, they do it. They have what's commonly considered. There's a percentage of drop that's considered, you know, the standard attrition is almost unheard of for a comic book to just keep hold of their number through a run, even a short run. It's almost unheard of. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that also the sales are are like a tenth of what they used to be. When I was in Marvel, I think our line average was up near three hundred thousand, and now if they sell thirty thousand, I think it's a big hit. Yeah, 
<laughs> Especially if you're not DC or Marvel. If anything, if you're not DC or Marvel, anything over 10, and you're killing it. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of these little publishers, you, you check their... I, I read the, the ICV2 sales figures sometimes. Yeah. And you check those, and, and you know some of these are selling 500 copies, like 600 copies, some of these independent yeah. ones. And even the DCs and Marvels, that are, some of them are 8,000, 10,000, 15,000, you know. It's it's very sad in a way, and, and of course now you know I mean the, the, both companies are just in in ruins right now, DC and Marvel. And for a while, Diamond wasn't distributing it, you know any new comics. DC had gone through some alternative distributors, and I think they they dropped out of that. So I guess it's online or nothing. I, I don't know. So so when you were writing for DC, you created one of the greatest villains for Superman, in my opinion, the character of the Parasite. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the character has endured, and I guess when you think about the great Superman villains, Parasite has definitely now broken into probably your, your top five or so. You have Luther, you probably have Zod now is now considered one of the big ones. Parasite is probably one of the big ones, and Brainiac, and then that's probably uh, debatable who's the other ones are. It, yeah, I you say the thing is that when I started writing comics, I mean, like, one of the things I noticed about Stan's books is a lot of new characters, you know, new villains all the time. Every issue of Spider-Man was a new villain. You know, and, it, and that made it a big deal when he brought back Dr. Octopus. That was a big deal. So I wanted to do that as much as I could. So my first issue that was published, I introduced four new Legionnaires, one of whom, whom turned out to be a bad guy, and tried to keep uh, creating villains. And when Mark, Mort Weisinger asked me to write a Superman story, because I, I would do the Legion every month, but I could do more than one a month. So I'd have time. And then he would ask me to do World's Finest, Jimmy Olsen, Superboy, in his own title, whatever, you know, Supergirl story. So yeah, anyway, he asked me to do a, to do a Superman. And so I thought, I got to create a new villain. Because, you know, everybody's tired of Lex Luthor and, and who else you got? The Toy Man? You know, give me a... So, so I, I was in biology class. I was in ninth grade. I'm sitting there trying, trying to think of a, a villain for Superman. And we're studying parasites. Parasites. <laughs> You know, and so I came up with a thing and, and, and a lot of people have carried it a lot farther and that's fine. You know, I mean, uh, characters, you know, are there to, to grow and it's not my character. I mean, DC owns it. It always, always did. And so they, they, they can develop it as they please, but I'm glad it's still around. I'm really, it's nice. Is it, is it, is it, it must be daunting to create a new villain for Superman because you have a character who in some, depending on the era has literally been shown to move a planet now you got to create a villain that can be opposing and threatening to this character it what is i mean is, is there a trick to creating something that is worthy of the character of superman well yeah it's it's harder and i think that these days i'm i'm sorry to say you know so many of the writers in the last decade or two they weren't up to the task i mean the only way they could make interesting stories about superman was to diminish him mm. okay to make him less powerful, also to, to, to make, give him all these flaws. They couldn't think of interesting stories for somebody who was really noble. And, and so he, he was petulant, he was angry, he was vengeful, he was violent. You know, what? Not Superman. Right. What's wrong with you guys? I mean, Mort Weisinger was spinning in his grave, so is Julie, because that's not, that's not who Superman is. And it, takes, it does take some, some work. It takes a, a good writer to realize that, that no, you, you, there are ways that you can give a, a, a very, very, very powerful and noble character a lot of trouble. And so I made my shot at it, you know, and, and other people have done some, some great stuff 
with it. A lot of it these days, though, like I said, they 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 they, only, they think the only way they can make them make good stories is, is to, to diminish the guy, and that's not. He is supposed to be the the best, the iconic hero, and so you know, get a better writer. He said. <laughs> you think you think modern writers are too cynical to properly write Superman? Maybe I I think you know I, the thing is Stan Stan started out doing characters who had flaws and stuff like that. And Stan was interviewed so many million times that a lot of his answers kind of devolved into sound bites. And so Stan's standard soundbite is he would say, heroes with problems, right? And that's not what it was at all. And I, I told him this to his face and he laughed and he said, you're right. I said, it's heroes with lives. Mm. That's what it is, heroes with lives. And, you know, so, so okay. But I think a lot of people were influenced by Stan and Jack and Steve and all those people. And, and they started, you know, like they, they took it the wrong way. Heroes with problems and heroes with flaws rather than heroes with lives. And, and so and it almost became like, well, what's the most shocking thing I can do to a Batman? I know I'll break his back, you know, and it, they, it got into this thing where they were looking for shock value and, and, you know, the, 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 the building burns, the baby dies, the, the villain gets away cackling and Batman's legs are broken. And, you know, I, 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 that, to me, sorry, after a few times, I'm not shocked anymore. And it's mm. just depressing. And I want to read a story about Batman. You know, I, want to, I don't want it to be about, you know, his, his villain and, and Batman's horrible, you know, pathetic failures. No, no thanks. It, it's kind of funny. I mean, you may disagree with me or you may not, but it feels like one of the best interpretations of Superman now is basically Captain America in the Marvel movies. I mean, he almost feels like a, a noble character who is a purely good person. And I feel like Superman has for lost that aspect of him. No, I, well, Captain America, it's supposed to be that way. And, and uh, Superman should be that way only on a greater scale. I mean, I used, to t I used to argue with people all the time about, uh, you know, trying to tell them who these characters are. And one of them in particular that they had trouble understanding was Captain America. There's a lot of writers, they either wanted to make him Captain Republican, or Captain <laughs> Current Administration, yeah. or, 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 you know, Captain, you know, well, now he's a Nazi, you know, no, 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 no. He's, he's, he's the champion of the ideals of, of uh, freedom and and uh liberty in all forms the ideals of america he doesn't fight for an administration or a government or no he, he's he's the champion he, he's he's as much like the he's more like a statue of liberty he's like what these guys make him into mm. and again superman the same thing think about it here's a guy who as you say can move planets right if he wasn't the noblest person around <laughs> he wasn't the noblest person ever then every single country in the world would have their secret anti-Superman program going on, just in case he decided to, oh, say, sink the Seventh Fleet on a whim, you know? Right. Because, you know, I mean, if he was, if he was a flawed character, he would, be, he would be a bad guy, by definition, you know? If, 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 so, so you either play him the way he's supposed to be played, or that you better explain to me why, why they're not, you know, trying to build anti-Superman weapons in every country in the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, one of the, one of the great Superman stories that, that you are part of, you wrote with Kurt Swan, the Superman Flash Race. 
Superman what? The Superman Flash race. I guess the first ever oh, time yeah, they had yeah, the characters yeah. race, which was, is just which was. is such a fun um, idea, and it's and it's been repeated so many other times in comic books and TV shows and the cartoon and you know the idea, and even at the end of I don't know if you watched the DC movies that came out, but at the end of Justice League, they had they showed the beginning of that race. It's, it was such a fun idea. Did was there editorial telling you you can't have you know like how you know debate on who would be the winner, how that would all work out? Well, what happened was Mort Weisinger called me up. And he said, he said, he said, I need a Superman story. You have any ideas? And I, I immediately said, can I use the Flash? And he said, I can arrange that. See, because when I was like about six, that's when the Flash appeared in Showcase. That's when they revived the Flash and he first appeared in Showcase, DC Showcase. And I, I loved it. That's really cool, you know? And, uh, but of course, with Showcase, it was, he didn't get his own series right away, I don't think. And by the time he did, I wasn't paying much attention anymore. But but I really liked him at the beginning. So little six year old Jimmy, okay, in his little his little notebook that he would draw in. I used to I used to think Superman super has super speed. Flash has super speed. Who's faster? And I would draw little figures of them running. You know, and maybe Superman's little head here and Flash's little head here. So I had that in the back of my mind since I was six years old. And then when Mort says you have an idea, I said, yeah, give me the Flash, and then he did. And as you said, but the only, Mort almost never interfered with me editorially. I mean, he, he, he left me alone mostly. And he used to brag about, you know, he never had to change a word, you know, kid can write any character or stuff like that. Not to me. I heard about that later from his assistant, Nelson. <laughs> right, right. So it was, just yell at me. But, but anyway, the thing is, one thing, I occasionally would get instructions. And in that particular story, Mort said, it has to be a tie. I said, why? I think the Flash should win because it's his only power, you know? <laughs> Good point. And, and, and Mort says, no, no. He says, if the Flash wins, the Superman fans will be upset. If Superman wins, the Flash fans will be upset. It has to be a tie. <sighs> okay. So I engineered some way to make it a tie. You know, did my little 14-year-old best. But <clears throat> Excuse me. It, it, it's kind of, it's kind of, I think your point was that the Flash, that really is his one thing. It's like, can you just give him the one thing? Superman does have everything else. Give Flash the one thing that, you know, that that's his deal. Also, I tried to look for, like, things that were unique to the character. I mean, <clears throat> Superman is super speed, but the Flash can, like, vibrate through objects and, you know, do some other tricks that Superman can't do. And so I reasoned that, well, maybe then you know, he, he would win. And it was the same when I had to write the Superman Spider-Man book. Okay, you got Superman, he can do everything, right? As Spider-Man, who is a much smaller scale, but he has spider sense and Superman does, Superman doesn't. And so when it comes down to which, which, is, which thing is dangerous, this or this, he knows, okay? And, and that was well established by Stan and Steve a million times. So, so I used that. And so he, he, is you know on par with with superman even though superman is far more powerful you know they both contribute and and uh, equally i thought so you know i i, I try always to do that i, I did I wrote a legion superhero story that never got published because it was years later book was canceled where i was trying to think of uh, ways to use uh chameleon boy and uh, mark wade had established that when he changed it to look like something, if it was physical characteristics, he could take them on. Like he, he couldn't have x-ray vision like Superboy, but he could, you know, he could be very, he couldn't be Superboy either. He, 
All right. He couldn't, you know, the, the fire radiation of any form, but, but he, if he was an, an armored creature, he would be armored, you know, anyway. So Mark Wade established that. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I had a situation where there's an attack on this, on this city and here's Colossal Boy. And if he grows, he's just a bigger target, you know, <laughs> because, <laughs> because they're all armed with, you know, heavy weapons and, and ray guns and stuff. But Chameleon Boy, he finds this basically a, a suit of armor, this police protective gear, right? Futuristic police, you know, body armor, essentially. So he copies that. Mark White also established that he could that he he could shift mass as well as shape. He copies that, and he becomes armor for Colossal Boy and grows with him. And now it's armored Colossal Boy. Yeah. And he was able to beat the bad guys. So I mean, I kept trying to find like interesting things to do with the powers or what somebody could do, or you know, because I mean, you know, you see all the time, even in the movies, uh, people don't think it through. You know, uh, Yoda can raise a, uh, a whole uh, entire um, uh, X-Wing fighter out of a swamp, okay? But Jedis who are fighting and these metal-eating things are getting on their wings and eating the metal. There's nothing they can do about that, you know? <laughs> okay. E.T.'s, you know, recovers, is recovering from being almost dead. The, the kids in the bicycles are trying to get him back to his spaceship, right? I was like five kids or something. And they're zooming along and dodging the police and going, you know, off the road and stuff like that. And then he, eventually they come to a roadblock they can't get through. And so what does E.T. do? He flies them all up into the air. Because Spielberg wanted that shot of the bicycles going over the moon, which later became his logo for Amblin Entertainment. Spielberg wanted that shot. But think about it. If E.T. can fly himself and five kids on bicycles way up in the air, why does he need the kids? Right. <laughs> Good point. So, so you know, I mean, like, and to me, I'm always seeing this stuff and thinking, you know, guys, call me. I'll tell you. <laughs> give me, give me a call. I'll, I'll right. on for you. I'll tell you how to, how to accomplish. I'll, I'll, I'll get them flying across the moon. And I'll make it make sense. Well, that's why I, when you mentioned like the Flash, and the only thing he can do is run fast. I think to myself, he's the most underappreciated superhero. If you can run that fast. The amount of impact he can hit something with is actually probably makes him one of the strongest characters, probably in all the comic books at that rate. But people always use him. At, I mean, when you ever you, you watch the CW, The Flash, you have him punching some guy like a thousand times and he just stands still. It's like, do you know how hard those hits probably are landing at that speed? You know, but they never use them properly. Well, that's true. On the other hand, if he did hit something at that high speed and he didn't like vibrate through it, wouldn't he shatter every bone in his body? Good point. I, I always assume. So, so, you know, I mean, Josh, Josh Whedon in uh, one of the Avengers things when he had Quicksilver in there, he played it pretty well. I mean, because super speed is a tremendous power. Right. If, uh, even if you're Captain America, how do you fight a guy who, who's like, if I wrote that, I'd write it differently. But Captain America is my man. He's my guy. Okay. <laughs> Jack Kirby drew that and, and gave it to me. It's I actually, I've got it at an auction, gave it to him. He gave it back. <laughs> he wrote on it to Jim, a good friend. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's good. I, so guess what's on my wall, man? I'll tell you. Yeah. So when was it a difficult decision to leave DC for Marvel? No, like I said, more Weisinger's yelled at me all the time and you know made it very 
unpleasant. You know, I mean, when I was younger, I was like, you know, 13, 14, well, 14, 15. I just, you know, I mean, the phone would ring and I was sure it was Mort and I'd be terrified he's going to yell at me some more, get all white knuckled and stuff. And then when I started getting a little older, I started realizing, no, he does this to everybody. And that's just his MO. And if I really, if he, he kept calling me moron, you stupid, why do you do this? Can't you spell what's this supposed to be? Because I did layouts, you know. And I used to, I used to, at the end of some of these phone calls, I actually said, look, maybe I just can't do this. You know, you have to get somebody else. And he'd always say, no, I'll give you one more chance. You're my charity case. Because he knew a family needed the money. Right, right, right. Charity case. Oh, well, that's sweet. So anyway, so I, I, then I saw him being, you know, nasty to other people, Nelson Bridwell in particular. And I, I thought, you know what, that's just, that's just what he does. You know, and they wouldn't keep sending me these, these these checks if I was that bad. You know, so I, I started to let it roll off my back. I said, just that's not start pleasant, you know. And I was going to go to college, and I asked Mort if it was something easier that I could do besides the writing. Yeah, they wanted me to move to New York, and I, at 400 miles from Pittsburgh to New York, I was 18 and no money, and you know, it just didn't work out. But and then years later. When Moore was gone, I did work for DC again, not because he was gone, just because that's when they asked me. And I did some work for Marvel and, you know, the rest is his.